My name is Brian. If we've not had a chance to meet yet, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the midst of a real long series through the book of Ephesians. I hope you've enjoyed it if you've been here for it. And the book of Ephesians mentions marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. So we decided we would take three weeks and stop and just have a conversation as a church about this subject of marriage. And, and here's the deal. Whether, you are, whether you're here and you're married and you hope to be, or you're here and you hope to be married, or you're here and you used to be married, whatever your marital status is, here's what I need you to understand, that the principles that we are talking about through this series, they are useful in all sorts of relationships. We're looking at them through the lens of marriage, but regardless of your marital status, there is so much benefit in the principles that we're talking about. Uh, they're counterintuitive, I'll be really honest with you. They're countercultural. A lot of these principles, they don't seem to make a lot of sense on the surface, but if we can take them and apply them, our marriages will be healthier, we will be happier, our relationships will be stronger. And I just, I just wanna be real honest with you right off the top. So over the years, I have done a ton of teaching on dating and relationships. I spent years as a young adults pastor, I've spent years working in singles ministry, and for, for good reason, and for obvious reason, those are subjects of great interest to those two populations. But I, I've not done a ton of teaching in my life as a pastor on marriage, but I will tell you this, I tried really hard to be on my best behavior all week this week. Because I wasn't going to get up here in front of all y'all knowing that I'm going to get up here and talk about marriage and be in trouble at home, right? Like that just was not going to happen. So I just was real hard all week trying to be on my best behavior. But just to tell you a little bit about just kind of my, my wife and my, my marriage, just to give you a sense of where I'm coming from as we talk about this. So, so we just celebrated 13 years uh, this last September. So uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> applause is for her, obviously. I understand that. But um, so our marriage is now a teenager, so that's, that's exciting, but we, we dated for four years before we got married, so, so over the course of the last 17 years together, we navigated college and graduate school and more addresses than I care to remember and kind of the fits and starts that come with starting our, our careers. We've had times where we were both students. We've had times where one of us was a student and one of us was working. We've had times where we were both working full-time. There was a time where she was working full-time and I was a stay-at-home dad. There have been times where we both worked full-time. And then now, since March, with the schools closed and everything else, uh, my wife's been at home while I've continued to work. So uh, I'm not going to say we've experienced a little bit of everything, but I am going to say we've experienced a little bit of a lot of things, right? Like, we've just, we've just been through a lot together. And, and throughout the course of our relationship, throughout the course of our marriage, we've always had a pretty egalitarian approach to the way that we run our household. And I I say that not as a prescription, not to say that everybody needs to do things the way that we do it, but that's just the way things have always been. There's a, been a pretty strong emphasis on equality, and just because of the fact that there's been so much variance over the years in like who's working and how much are you working and what are you doing and all this other stuff, there, there just has not been a real strong emphasis on kind of traditional gender roles or, or anything like that, and there even hasn't been much of an emphasis in terms of like who does what from a housework perspective. It's always sort of been 
a team effort. And, and, and that sort of just, just kind of sharing of household tasks and, and sharing of, of routines and all of that, it's just very normal to us. And, and this is true for, for many of us, just the way that we live our lives is, is normal to us. And, and because of that, uh, people that do things differently, that's going to seem pretty weird. And, and I remember, uh, as a matter of fact, one time years ago, we're sitting in a, in a small group for young married couples. And this one couple, they were sharing a story, kind of going back and forth. And in the course of their sharing the story, uh, the gentleman, the, the husband, he, go, he says, yeah, so uh, I was uh, noticing my, my, I was running low on undershirts. So I said to my wife, uh, I'm running low on undershirts. So, you know. <laughs> and he said that like that was a very normal thing to say to your spouse. And listen, no judgment from me. I recognize that different households organize the division of labor differently, so that might be a very normal thing to say in some households, and if everyone's happy with that arrangement, that's fine. I just remember my wife and I got in the car, and we're like, can you believe what he said? I'm running low on undershirts, so? Like, I don't know what my wife would say if I said that to her. She's like, why are you telling me this? Did you forget where our laundry machine is? The thought that my wife should do my laundry had just never crossed my mind up to that point. And frankly, hasn't really crossed my mind since. And again, however you do the laundry in your household, fantastic. I just share that to say that we just have a pretty egalitarian approach in our home. Now, if there are exceptions to that, there are these. That that on some level, uh, and we talked about this a little bit last week, we talked about how in Ephesians chapter 5, there is this, this concept of, of headship that is, that, is, that is presented in the text. And I do believe on some level in male headship in the household, but here is what that looks like in, in my view. And this is how I try to practice it in my home. That in my home, I, as the head of the household, bear ultimate responsibility before God for the well-being of my family. Now, my wife shares in that responsibility. It is not all on me. But as the head of the household, I bear primary responsibility. Like, if everything falls apart, <laughs> I view that as ultimately on me. And then secondarily, it is my job to go first to sacrifice my well-being for the good of others in my family. So I make sure, I, it is my job to make sure everybody else is okay, and then I make sure that I'm okay. Now, that does not mean that I, I'm not assertive appropriately about things that I need or communicating my needs, or it doesn't mean that. But if Christian leadership is servanthood, and it is, if we're going to say that, okay, I am the head of my household, that means I go first in service and I go last in everything else. Now, this will not shock you. I am not perfect at this but I'm very clear on the goal. If we're gonna talk about headship, that is what it is. First to serve, first to look out for others, first to bear ultimate responsibility. Now with that, and, and again, I share this to you just to give you a sense of, of where, where I'm coming from. With that, my wife often does defer to my leadership and my decision making, but here, here's the key. It is a willing deferral. It is not a coerced deferral, right? Sometimes she just, she's like, okay, listen, I don't care what kind of car we get, just handle it, right? I don't care where we go on vacation, just plan it, right? And I'm like, cool, all right, here we go. She'll defer to my leadership, but it's never forced. And I share that once again just to give you an insight into where we're going. Now, we've navigated a lot together in these last 17 years, and the, last, the most recent thing we've had to navigate, along with all of you, is this little thing you may have heard about called a global pandemic, 
uh, I would have preferred not to participate, but sadly, that was not an option. So we've navigated this together, and I just want to acknowledge that everything we've been through as a society in the last six months has been pretty hard on relationships in general and marriages in particular. That, 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 that forced proximity plus financial and emotional stress plus not knowing when the heck all of this is going to end, all of it creates a perfect storm for marital conflict, doesn't it? And listen, do, do not say amen to this if you are here with your spouse, but there has never been a time when it is easier to notice your spouse's flaws than right now, right? And this is true, if you're here and you're not married, there's all sorts of relational challenges for, for, for unmarried folks as well, whether it's people that you live with or just navigating different social dynamics. So listen, this is a just difficult time relationally, pardon me for stating the obvious, but when it comes to marriage, I mean, you've seen the headlines if, you're, if you pay attention to the media at all. Increases in divorce filings, increases in marital challenges and problems. There was a Wall Street Journal article way the heck back in August, if you can remember back that far. And in the article, the author says this, that even in the best of times, marriages and relationships are hard work. And, and whether you're married or not, I hope you understand that. That marriage, it's, it's wonderful work, but, but it's work. And if you don't approach it like work, it's going to create problems for you. But that's another sermon for another day. But the pandemic, the article goes on, has produced a pressure cooker inside homes, straining even strong partnerships, and experts say likely breaking others. Families are cooped up with spouses trying to work while also taking care of their kids. Job losses, caring for at-risk elderly parents, arguments over what's safe, and disagreements over school reopening are all taking a toll. And I imagine if you're here and you're married, you can relate to some, if not all, of that, right? Even if your marriage is healthy and strong, chances are there's been a bit of an uptick in tension in the last six months. And as I think about everything we've gone through as a society, and particularly what that all means for marriage, a certain word keeps coming to mind for me. And it's a word that gets talked about a lot in Christian circles, but when we talk about it in Christian circles, we are generally referring to like the end times or destructions or destruction or things like that. But it's the word apocalypse, or apocalyptic. And I feel this has been an apocalyptic time for marriages. Now hear me out, I don't mean in that way. The word apocalypse literally means revealing. In fact, the pastor of the church I attended in college used to say, if you're married and you're sleeping with your partner and they roll over and steal all the covers, you have been apocalyped, right? <laughs> revealing. In that sense, these last six months have been apocalyptic for marriages, that it's revealed what's there. I've talked to a lot of different people who have said, you know, our marriage, I think the strength of what we've built is really shown. But I've talked to a lot of people also who, who, who say in different words, basically, you know, things we could kind of overlook in ordinary times are coming to the surface, and we're having to deal with stuff, and it's stressful, and there's, ten and there's tension. It's been an apocalyptic time. It's revealed 
what is there. And because that is true, listen, I don't think, I, I, I think there's never a bad time to talk about marriage and, and marriage health, but I don't think there's been a better time in our recent past for us as a church just to say, okay, hold up. Let's just spend a couple of weeks talking about some of God's design for marriage, what marriage is supposed to look like, some principles from scripture we can carry into our marriages, carry into the most significant relationships in our lives, because so much of our lives is built on our, the quality of our relationships, and nowhere is this more true than marriage. And marriages are under a lot of stress right now. And the text that we're using as a jumping off point for this little mini-series is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. And I'm not going to read the whole passage today, but if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 5, and I actually want to start in verse 18. We've been camping out on this little passage of scripture that's started in verse 18. We've been taking it real slow the last few weeks because there's a lot going on. But what it says, starting in Ephesians 5, verse 18, is Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on in the next few verses to list a few behaviors that flow from being filled with the Spirit. And we've spent time these last few weeks talking about these behaviors. It says, listen, when you are filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart, this is the overflow. These are the sorts of, th sorts of things that you will start to see in your life. And the paragraph ends with this in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in the verses that follow, Paul begins to apply this concept of submitting to one another to marriages. It says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and on and on it goes. But here was the important thing that Pastor Paul pointed out last week, that this like blew my mind when I first learned it in seminary. That if you look at the original Greek, the word submit is not in verse 22. It's in verse 21. So the big idea is we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as an example, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. So, so here's the big idea. The big idea is when you and I, regardless of gender, regardless of marital status, when we are filled with the Spirit, it leads to a desire for mutual submission. See, if you and I, if we're not filled with the Spirit and we're just operating on kind of what makes sense to us or what's popular culturally, the idea of submitting yourself to another person is going to sound crazy. Why would I ever do that? It sounds like something that's going to make me miserable. And yet God, who cares more about your well-being and more about your joy than even you do, God in his infinite wisdom, in his inspired word, says when you are filled with the Spirit, what will happen is that you will submit to one another. And what, pastor, what our Pastor Paul, not the Apostle Paul, but Pastor Paul so beautifully unpacked last week was he applied this idea of mutual submission to the marriage relationship. And I loved what he said. He said that the pathway to a better and more fulfilling marriage is through the practice of mutual submission. In other words, Christian marriage is a race to the bottom. Christian marriage is a race to the back of the line. In Romans, in a different context, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. And that, to me, is sort of the picture, is the same idea that Paul is getting at here. And I just want to tell you, if the idea of mutual submission seems scary to you, 
Or if you're not sure how it works, or it just seems so, so just beyond what is natural to you, or maybe even if you were raised in an environment where you were taught Ephesians 5.22, removed from the context of 5.21, so all you were ever taught was wives submit to your husband. If, if anything about this kind of makes you nervous, let me tell you something that I absolutely guarantee you is true. If you think about people in your life, married people you know, who are sincerely and genuinely happy in their marriage. And I don't mean people that are just like hanging on and trying to make it work. I don't mean people that are just sticking it out for the kids. I don't mean just people that have kind of learned to live with each other and are kind of making the most of it, right? I'm talking about people that have been married for a decade or two or three or or four or more and still actually like each other. I'm talking about people like you spend time with them and it just seems weird because they're actually nice to each other most of the time and it seems like they're sincere in it. Like those types of people, I know, they do exist out there. Those types of people, you go and talk to them and you get, if you were to get a sense of, okay, what, tell me your secret. Like what is it? Talk to me about how you built this type of a marriage. Listen, marriage is complex, but I guarantee you they will tell you that part of their secret sauce to a healthy marriage is this practice of mutual submission. I absolutely guarantee it. Happy marriages understand this concept that they have learned and they have practiced this idea of mutual submission. Marriage as God intended it. Marriage that is a delight to both partners. Marriage that is joyful and fulfilling and fun. That kind of marriage, it's not built around the mentality of you owe me. It is not built around the mentality of why don't you ever. It is not built around the mentality of if only you would. It's not built around the mentality of why should I do for you, you never do for me. It's not built around a stick up for my rights and make sure that I have all of my rights mentality. It's not built around the question of what can I justify. Instead, it's built around the question of how can I go first in showing kindness. It's not a game of tug of war. If anything, it's a race to see who can put the rope down first. In short, the happiest married people you know will tell you, they might not use this language, but they'll tell you that one key to their happiness in marriage is the practice of mutual submission. I read a marriage book recently by a pastor named Brian Chappelle, and he says this. He says, we discover the happiness God intends for our lives only when we use the resources and privileges God has given us for the good of another. Man, that's a, that's a concept that has application far beyond marriage, but it's true in our marriages. See, see, we don't demand our way to happiness, right? We don't bargain our way to happiness. We don't negotiate our way to happiness. We serve our way to happiness. We we give our way to happiness. And it's interesting to note, you look at what non-Christian, secular researchers who study marriage are finding about those that study marital breakdown or why marriages are tense or why marriages sometimes split up and and fail. And again, these issues are complex. And and especially if you've been through any of this, I don't don't mean to simplify this at all. 
These issues are complex, I recognize that. But something that researchers are finding is that a key element that leads to marital strife and marital breakdown is that you and I, we enter marriage expecting far too much from our partners and not nearly enough from ourselves. I mention that in marriage sermons sometimes. We expect far too much from our partners and not nearly enough from ourselves. See, we all dream of a romantic partner who's just gonna sweep us off our feet and and make every one of our dreams come true, right? None of us grew up dreaming of, gosh, I just can't wait to find someone I love and pull them close and look them in the eye and say, I know you've had a hard day, so I would love to do the dishes tonight so that you can rest, and you owe me nothing in return. That makes for a lousy movie, but it makes for a beautiful life, right? Doesn't make for a great movie, but it makes for a beautiful life. See, we expect far too much, and we don't want to give enough. Marriages break down because we want a partner who will serve us, and we're not looking to serve. So God, who invented marriage, God, who wants to see us thrive, God, in his wisdom, says in his word, as Pastor Paul showed us last week, that the pathway to a better and more fulfilling marriage is through this practice of mutual submission, so, so in the time I have left, I have, two, I have two things I want to do, okay? So we're like, like halftime right here. I got two things I want to do here in the, in the second half, pardon the sports analogy. I want to talk briefly about one truth that is the absolute linchpin to mutual submission. You are really going to struggle to practice this, to go first in this in your marriage without understanding this truth. And then second, we're going to look at a powerful but underrated way you can practice mutual submission in your marriage. And this was one that was an absolute game changer for Christy and I. So, so, so first of all, the linchpin of, the linchpin of mutual submission We've already talked about this idea that the desire to submit to others in general comes from being filled with the Spirit. And Pastor Paul showed us, that, that showed us last week that when we're filled with the Spirit, it fills us with the desire to seek out the best interests of somebody else. But there's something else I want to show you in the text. See, so you look down at verse 21 if you have your Bible open. It gives us the why behind submitting to one another. It says... Submitting to one another because they are awesome and deserve it all the time. You're like, that's not what my Bible says. That's not what it says. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for who? Christ. Right? Submit to one another, not out of reverence for one another, but out of reverence for Christ. And this, by the way, would have been just an incredibly radical idea in the ancient world into which this letter was written. See, in the city of Ephesus, there were all sorts of gods and goddesses who were worshipped by the people, all sorts of pagan gods and goddesses. And what all of these gods and goddesses had in common was that part of your worship to them was that you would sacrifice to them. You would show reverence to them to try to curry their favor so that your crops would grow or your kids would be healthy or whatever it is you were trying to get from them. But a very common part of worship in sort of the pagan ancient world was this idea that we show that we love our gods because we sacrifice to them. And then Paul comes along and he says, the God of Jesus Christ is different. That actually you show that you love him not by sacrificing to him, but by sacrificing for one another. 
That actually the way you show your reverence for Christ is in your treatment of one another. That was an absolutely radical concept in the ancient world. So when the Bible calls us to submit to one another, we're not called to do it because other people deserve it. I did a little informal, non-scientific study this week, just sort of observed the world around me, and I found that one out of every one men is not worthy of submission. <laughs> Ladies, the numbers don't look much better for you. Sorry to tell you. We don't submit to one another out of reverence for them. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's it. That's the linchpin. See, we seek the good of our spouse. We consider the needs of our spouse. We value our spouse's happiness and fulfillment not a, above our own, not because they're awesome and they deserve it, but because Jesus is awesome and he deserves it. And he says through his word, do you want to show me reverence? Do you want to show me how much you love me? Love your husband. Lo love your wife. Submit to them, not out of reverence for them, but out of reverence for me, he says. And this is an absolute game changer because what that means is that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and then it is no longer our own strength that we are relying on to submit ourselves to our spouses, but rather we are using the Holy Spirit's strength and we're able to say, listen, I know my spouse is irritating sometimes, but I am going to submit to them even though they don't deserve it as an act of worship to my God. Now, I know you're going to find this very hard to believe, but I can, on occasion, be a little bit difficult to live with. I don't scream and yell or lose my temper. Like, that's just not a, not a, not a thing that I'm, 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 just not a thing. But when I get angry or I'm hurt, I can withdraw, I can be cold, I can be distant and quiet, and it's just not good. It's, it's immature, and I'm not defending it. But that is how I often react when I'm in a bad place. And, and I need God's help to, to, to work with me on that. And I'm seeking God's help to, to work on that, because I, I don't want to live in that way. But in those moments where I'm acting in that manner, there is nothing in my behavior that makes me worthy of love and kindness and submission from my wife. But she can... Show me those things, not because I deserve them, but out of reverence for Christ. And there are times when my wife is difficult to live with because of her own challenges. And in those moments, and I, I'm far from perfect at this, but in those moments, I can choose to show her love and respect and kindness and submission, not because she deserves it, but out of reverence for Christ. See, sometimes if you're married or, you, or, you, or, or if you're married someday, loving your spouse and submitting to them, there'll be times when it's easy. And it's joyful and it's even fun. But too often it's difficult. It just is. I, I don't know any other way to put it. So we don't do it because our spouse deserves it. We do it because our heavenly father who loves us says if you want to show reverence to me, you submit to one another. Now, that does not mean we are doormats. That does not mean we tolerate abusive or unethical behavior. It does not mean we submit to a partner who is leading us into sin. 
But it does mean we can submit to our spouses even when they are not worthy because God is worthy and loving and submitting to our spouses is an act of worship to him. And I just want to, just, just, just for a moment, consider the alternative. If the alternative is, okay, I will submit to my spouse, I will consider their needs before my own when they deserve it, what's going to happen? You're going to have a marriage where you've got two people with that perspective and nothing gets better. Nothing gets better. It's, it's the tug of war. It's the fighting for your rights. It's the bickering and arguing. Nothing gets better when that's the perspective. Now, I want to take you briefly to, the one, to one of the most familiar passages about love in the entire Bible. If you're a church person, you, you, you know this passage. It talks about all the time. And that is 1 Corinthians 13. And I just, we're not going to take a deep dive into it. But I want to look at some of the words that Paul uses to describe love because I want you to see just how closely the scriptures tie this idea of love and mutual submission, right? Very few of us have a problem with the idea of loving our spouses. None of us are like anti-loving your spouse, right? Some of us are like, it's hard sometimes, but we're not against it principally, whereas some of us might have a harder time with this idea of mutual submission. What I want to show you is how closely linked they are. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, Paul says this. He says, love is patient. Patience necessarily means we are not giving in to our own impulses. It means we're accommodating. It means, this is so huge, it means we are seeking understanding. I would argue to be patient means you seek understanding instead of, making, instead of make assumptions. You seek understanding instead of making assumptions, right? Because so, so many of us, we, we, we end up making assumptions about our spouses in ambiguous situations, and we automatically decide that whatever the worst explanation for their behavior we can come up with, that's the truth, right? So we're like mad at them before we've even had a conversation. And so often that's not the case. We seek understanding. I love what Tim Keller says. He talks about what it means to fall in love. He says it's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you in the, you and God in the journey you are taking. I love that. See, I think there's patience in I don't want to partner with you in what God is doing in your life. Love is kind. See, and <laughs> here's the thing. Kindness is like humility. We are all about it for other people. <laughs> it's a lot of work for ourselves, right? Like, most of us would agree, you know, it probably wouldn't kill my spouse to grow in kindness, right? <laughs> But very few of us have the level of self-awareness to say, okay, I want to be somebody who can grow in kindness. Because so many of us, and this is, you know, we're raised on Hollywood and everything else. We have this picture in our minds that, like, that, that this, this person is going to come and they're just going to overwhelm us with kindness and fulfill our every wish. And they'll be so kind and so wonderful that our marriage or our relationship will require nothing of us because they're just so kind and perfect, Right? It's a Hollywood fantasy. That's not the way it works. See, another word for kindness, for kind, is considerate. 
And that's just so simple. And this is something, listen, if you're, if you're not married or you used to be married or you know, whatever the case may be, this is something you can practice in every single relationship in your life. And if you're married someday, you will be better off in your marriage for it. Just this idea that we are intentionally considering the feelings of another. That's kindness. And I've just found, as I've counseled couples in crisis different times over the years, one of the biggest, and again, it's complex. I'm not trying to, 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 to you know, make too many generalizations here. But one of the biggest things I see is couples in crisis have forgotten how to be kind. They've forgotten how to be kind. I like, I've, can't tell you how many times in my, I just want to tell people, just be nice. Just, just be nice. We get so wrapped up, we forget how to be kind. Love, is not en- love does not envy or boast. Envy is an absolute killer in relationships and marriages. Understand this, your spouse is not your competitor. They are your teammate. They are your partner, right? <laughs> I got this tested really early on in our relationship because when Christy and I first started dating, we were students at UCLA, and I'm just, like, I'm just an average guy, average student, did a few things around campus, but nothing all that interesting. And my wife is a Division I athlete, right? Like traveling all over the country, competing in national championships, carrying the cool athlete backpack, going into all the fancy buildings that only athletes get to go into. There was plenty there to envy. But it's a real easy decision early on. Like I'm not I think it's incredible the stuff she gets to do. I'm going to be her biggest cheerleader, right? In the season of our life where I was home with our son and she was working successful in her career and running this blog that was read by people all over the world and had all this sort of outward success and getting job offers in the mail while I'm at home, I'm like, we're not doing envy. We're just not. I'm going to celebrate her success. I'm going to be her biggest cheerleader, right? And that's something we've shared throughout our relationship. We're not competing against one another, right? We value our marriage, and then we honor one another and support one another in the various things that we do other places. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. The last one I want to look at, it does not insist on its own way. When we get married, we sacrifice the right to always insist on our own way. And I want to suggest to you that the way we learn how to really live this out is we look to our Savior who did not insist on his own way. Jesus did not insist on his own way, and he is our example. So so we can, man, are there times where we have to have difficult conversations, we have to advocate for certain things? Sure, of, of course there are. But at the end of the day, we don't insist on our own way to the point of damaging the relationship. All of this, listen, it's countercultural. But it's key to, to, a, to a thriving marriage. We submit to one another in these ways. And, and now listen, I live in the real world just like you do. I am married to a human being. I know what you're thinking. You're hearing all of this and you're going, this all sounds great. I wish my spouse were better at it. Right? <laughs> but the bottom line is you can only control you. So once again, while we're never, never to tolerate abuse or, or harmful behavior. We can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We can, I love the metaphor of a game of tug of war where we say, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop the rope. I'm not, I'm not saying, okay, if I drop it, you'll drop it. Like, we have an agreement here, like, okay, one, two, three, drop. No, no I'm just gonna drop it. 
And because, listen, a one-person game of tug-of-war looks very silly very quickly. But also, it's something to be able to say, you know what, I'm just going to submit. I'm, I'm going first. I want to submit myself to you. I want to love you. I want to show you kindness that, that goes beyond what you deserve, right? And we do that out of reverence for Christ. And, and I just want to tell you, I, I, I just want to tell you, if you commit to practicing mutual submission only when your partner deserves it, you won't get very far. You just won't because they won't deserve it most of the time. I certainly don't. But, off, but it's in those moments when your spouse deserves at least that your submission can be the most powerful. So if our submission to one another is fueled by our reverence for Christ, that can give us the power and the strength that we need. And I just want to tell you real quick before we get to my second thing, if you're here and you're not married, I'm so many of these principles, you can practice them now. The ability to not insist on your own way, the ability to practice patience and considerations for the feelings of another, that is not a light switch you just turn on, right? Like, pardon the cliche, but like, I got married, I was pretty sure I was not a selfish person. Three days into it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I am the world's most selfish person, right? You can practice these things in advance. Now, second thing I want to talk about, and this will be quick. The first was this idea, the linchpin to a lifestyle of mutual submission, is that we do it out of reverence for Christ, not because our spouse always deserves it. The second, this is underrated, but it's immensely powerful. It's, it's not a magic bullet. I, I understand marriage is complex and it's, and it's messy, but it will save, you can do this. It will save you from so many avoidable marital, marital landmines. And I'm telling you, for Christy and I, once it took us way too long to, to, to get to this point, but once we actually put some time and effort into this, it was an absolute game changer for us. Because here's something you need to know. Um, about our relationship, just, just real quick, is that we, like a lot of people, we were initially drawn to one another because we had a lot in common. In fact, the first conversation we ever had was over, was over the internet because we got connected because we were in the same, uh, we had a class together at UCLA and we like chatted online for like an hour. And I remember after this first conversation, I went to go hang out with some friends of mine and this is the true, true story. I went and told them, I'm like, guys, I just went and talked to this I was talking to this girl from my sociology class and like she's a Christian and she's from Sacramento and she really likes sports and like all these other things. And my buddy goes, dude, I think you just met your wife. <laughs> Here we are, right? We had so much in common and that made things so fun and you know, disagreements and even arguments would pop up from time to time but like so much of our identity as a couple was just like, well, we're just so alike. We have so much in common. We're like practically the same person. So we wouldn't even do the work to try to figure out, okay, what's behind all these disagreements and arguments and fights? And, and you know, they didn't happen that often anyway so we're thinking, okay, we're good. But it took a really, really long time to figure out this very obvious truth that we're not the same person. Like really not the same person. And in fact, if you're a fill in the blank person and you're wondering, oh my gosh, did he forget the fill in the blank? No, I did not. Here it is. If you're married, the fill in the blank is this. You did not marry yourself. If you are not yet married, the fill in the blank is this. You will not marry yourself. Either way, thank God for that. But, but here's the underrated and powerful way to submit to your spouse. You do the work to understand specifically, and I cannot emphasize that word enough, specifically how they are different than you. 
And I don't mean different in the sense that like, well, she prefers the beach and I prefer the mountains. I mean different in terms of heart motivations, in terms of fears, in terms of deepest longings and ambitions and desires to do the work to understand how God made you different. It is so absolutely critical because here's the deal. Here's what you got to understand. The way that I do things, the way that I think, the way that I make decisions makes perfect sense to me. It is the best way to do it. Everybody should do things the way that I do. And if that sounds arrogant to you, you think the same thing. If you didn't think that, you would do things differently, right? It all makes perfect sense to me. But my wife is not me. But my wife is not me. And so often what would happen in in our arguments is we would just end up talking past each other and you end up like you're arguing with somebody who's you. But the problem is you're not arguing with you. You're arguing with somebody who is not you. And then that just never works. It just doesn't work. And now listen, there are a million tools you can use to help kind of get underneath the surface of your personality and your heart and your wiring and everything else. And I'm not here to recommend one or, you know, whatever. They can be as simple as online tests and as intensive as, you know, weekend workshops and therapy and, and all this other stuff. But I'll, I'll just tell you, just, just real quick, we're, we're running out of time here, but just real quick, for Christy and I, one of the most helpful tools we found was a tool called the Enneagram, which just helps you understand different elements of your personality. And listen, it is just a tool. It's not scripture. There's virtually no science behind it. So I'm not saying it's the be-all and end-all, but what the Enneagram does is it, and so many other tools do this, is what it, gave, what it did for us was it gave us language to articulate things in our heart that we had a difficult time expressing to one another. It gave us language that we could say, yes, I do think that way. Yes, that is a challenge for me. And then, and then with the Enneagram, you, you get like strengths and weaknesses revealed. So we would like study more and more and we'd study our different personality types. And I'd like read about the weaknesses of my personality type. And I'd be like, I mean, I don't, like, I don't really do this, do I? And she'd be like, well, do you want the truth? <laughs> No, I don't, but it's, it has, it's increased our self-awareness, right? It's, incre- it's helped me understand things about my wife that didn't make a lot of sense to me before. It's helped her understand things about me that didn't make a lot of sense to me before. And listen, the point is not the tool. The point is the process. The point is that we've done the work, and it is work that is ongoing. And, I, and it is no exaggeration to say that that work influences the way that I communicate with my wife every single day, every single day. Has it solved everything? Absolutely not, <laughs> but it helps. It helps a whole lot. So, so, so I, so I want to just encourage you, if you've not done this, done this work yet, there are a million tools out there. Do the work specifically to understand, if you're a married person, how are you different from one another? so that you can begin to speak each other's languages. And listen, once you know more about yourself, your personality or your personality type or any results you would get from a personality test, none of that is an excuse, right? You can't just say to your spouse, well, I'm just this way, deal with it. What your personality type or whatever does is it gives you language to understand your own strengths and weaknesses so that you can try your best not to hurt your spouse with it. And you can begin to accommodate to them. 
And what you can do is it's a way to, to communicate to your spouse, listen, instead of trying to force you to be like me, instead of talking to you like you're me, I want to do the work to understand the way that God made you so that we can communicate and partner in a healthier manner. You did not marry yourself. And if you're going to have a marriage where each one is for the other, you've got to understand how you're different. And you know that intellectually, but it takes some intentionality to actually live like that. And and let me just tell you why that's important. It's important for a lot of reasons, but but, but one thing, and, and then we'll be done. I don't have to know anything about you to know that one longing in your heart is to be understood. All of us want to be understood. We, we want to be with people who really, like, who just kind of get us, who, who understand what we're about, who, who know kind of our garbage and, and, and love us anyway and work with us on it and, and know the things that are important. We want to be understood. And listen, fundamental to building trust is building understanding. And when you understand one another as a married couple, that will increase your level of trust. And listen, a marriage where trust is absent, I heard another preacher say this in a sermon I listened to recently, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy because it is exhausting to live in an environment where there is not trust. But when trust is already present, it is so helpful in so many different ways. And listen, what trust does is it paves the way to intimacy in, in every form. When there is trust, there can be intimacy. And when there is intimacy, that that is marriage as God intended it. That is a partnership. That is is a married couple that is together. Does it mean you're never going to fight? No. Does it mean your marriage isn't going to be work? No. Oh, it'll be work. All right. Does it mean there won't be challenges? No. But what it does mean is that you will be building the kind of marriage that God designed, a marriage that is based around these beautiful concepts of mutual submission, where we practically, in ways big and small, can Say to our spouses and communicate it with our words and with our actions, I want to understand you. I want to understand the way God made you. I want to serve you and I want to partner with you to build a beautiful life together. And come on, isn't that what we all want? And what's even better is I believe that's what God wants for us. Because those type of marriages show his glory to the world. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you, the inventor of marriage, you've designed marriage to be so countercultural to even the way our society views it. That marriage is not meant to be a tug of war, marriage is not meant to be a competition for, for rights and advantages and all of that. But rather, marriage is meant to be an environment where we submit to one another out of reverence for you. So God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might even have a desire to submit ourselves to others. And I pray, God, that we would be so enamored with you, with the beauty of who you are, with the glory of who you are, with just just the incredible love that you have shown us, that we would be so enamored with you that we, those of us who are married, would submit to our spouses out of reverence for you. God, I pray that we would not just stand around waiting for someone else to go first, but we would have the courage, the trust, the faith 
to go first ourselves. For those of us who are, who are not married, I pray that we would just experience the, the joy that comes from applying these principles to the relationships that matter the most to us. And in all of these things, God, in such a relationally fraught time where there are so many different challenges, God, I pray just we as, as Bridgeway would shine brightly in our community by our, through our ability and our willingness to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for you. And I pray we would do all of that for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.